Tonight we are going to be picking up where we left off here in verse 9 of Revelation. However, we're going to kind of, we've been talking about the 144,000 here in chapter 7. And we need to look at them in a deeper way because they are going to be a very important key that we're going to see again later in chapter 14. And so we looked at verse 4 last week, but I just kind of want to uh, remind you of this here as well. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then it went on and it described 12,000 from each tribe. And we talked about in Revelation 14, 1, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And we talked about the seal that they are being sealed with to protect them is the Father's name. That these are indeed the same people. And I'm going to look a little bit deeper here in Revelation 14. So we're jumping ahead. And of course we'll talk about it when we get to chapter 14 again. But a little review won't hurt there either. Um, this is the only two places that we see this group of people mentioned. And so I want to try to put a little idea in your head of who these people are. I tend to think that they are Jews, but a special kind of Jew, you might say. And we're going to maybe even call them the a super Jew, okay? The overcomers is what the Bible would call them, okay? Yeah. Leviticus 23 says, On the first day you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. Any guesses what festival that is? It would be. It's the one coming up that we will be celebrating soon, and that is... The Feast of Sukkot, Tabernacles. And this Revelation 14.1, are these the same people? I believe they are that we're seeing here in Revelation 7. So let's look at, jump ahead a little bit here in Revelation 14, and it says this. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now that's important, because Yeshua is on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is where their temple was built. Then you have the Kidron Valley, and then you have Mount, uh, Mount Olives on the other side. Okay? With him, 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So, where are they? They're on Mount Zion. They're in Jerusalem. It says, I heard a voice from heaven, like a voice of many waters, and like a voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Only these people are going to be able to sing it, and it's going to be amazing, but there's something in common that these 144,000 people have. They've all been redeemed from the earth. These are those, some special um, event in life that they are able to relate to. And I don't know if you guys have ever had something like that, but a pretty big event where, where you share an experience with somebody, it deepens your connection. Well, in essence, that is what's happened here. And these guys are going to be singing a new song. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but it seems to be a song of deliverance. And this is a pattern we see in Scripture. We see it in Deuteronomy 32. Moses sings the song of Moses. We see Miriam's song after they cross the, the Red Sea. There are these songs of deliverance and praise that go on. Now, what I want you to see, I'm going to back up a little bit here again. Look what was happening at this festival. You've got palm fronds. You've got rejoicing before the Lord. And for seven days, or seven years, or seven days, seven days. All right? Now, here, 
We're seeing they're singing, they're rejoicing in this new song. They're on Mount Zion. Where was the Feast of Tabernacles supposed to take place? Mount Zion. And it goes on and it says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, what's interesting is if these are the same people we see as well in Revelation chapter 7, jumping back, it says right after these guys here, in verse 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice. So right after this, right after these 144,000, we're going to see a whole group of people that we're going to get into, a multitude of people, but they too are singing with a loud voice and they have palm fronds and they're before the temple, which seems to be Jerusalem. They're in the same place. And palm fronds are mentioned. It seems to have a connection here to the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles goes on for seven days. We're not going to get into it right now, but it seems like this might be in the middle of this seven-year period. We'll come back to that later. But even the seven days may have something to do with this seven-year period of tribulation. Because these other people that we see beyond these 144,000 are coming out of the tri tribulation. These 144,000 have been redeemed from men, it says. It doesn't say that they were redeemed from their sins. It says they were redeemed from men, from among men. could go either way, okay? Now, again, we'll talk more about them later, but I want you to look at this list that I have highlighted of all of these things, being virgins, following the Lamb, redeemed among men. They're the first fruits. Um, just to show you that I think these are the same people and, and to re, kind of revisit this chiastic structure that we've talked about at the beginning. We're going to focus on D and double D, but bottom line is we have... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. As soon as it came out, I know. But we have. Yeah, okay. Theme number one here. We have Revelation 1.1. Look, it says, things which must shortly take place. But then when you get to Revelation 22 at the end of the book, which must shortly take place. So you have the beginning and the end connected, and we're just going to kind of keep bringing it in. We see Revelation 2 and 3, it rebukes and promises to those who overcome. In chapter 21, verse 22, uh, through 22, verse 5, there's a fulfillment of promises for those who overcome. Then theme 3, in chapter 4, there's the sealed judgments that are being opened. And then in chapter 17, we see the judgments are ending. So the beginning of the judgments, the end of the judgments. With D, in chapter 7, we see that there's a reward for the good people. The seven trumpets are about to be uh, blown here. And there are going to be seven thunders for the bad people as well. And in Revelation 14, we see the same thing. There's a reward for the good and seven vials that are poured out on the ungodly. Then we have the two witnesses and comparing to the two beasts and the focal point gets you to chapter 12. But there is almost like an antithesis that goes on from one to the other. Okay, let me show you here just zeroing in just on chapter 7 alone. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, it says in verse 1, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow. But yet we jump ahead and we get into verse 2. It says that the same four angels then were granted to harm the earth and the sea. A, a second theme, theme B here, on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. 
then that corresponds to verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. Then the third theme there in starting verse 2, they have the seal of the living God. And then we see in verse 4 that they are sealed, these 144,000. So it's just that chiastic structure that I want you to see that it's kind of repetitive, showing the same type of things as well. And because of that, this also shows us, and I'm not, I'm not going to show you that in the chiastic structure, but that pattern meets to show the 144,000 in chapter 7 and the 144,000 in chapter 14. It just keeps moving, and there's a parallel between those two. So I'll leave it at that for now. But um, in Matthew chapter 24, when the disciples asked Jesus, what, is it, what, what are the signs going to be for your coming? He uses the language to show that the elect, and that's a word we hear a lot today, will be gathered from all parts of the world. We're going to need to talk about what it means to be elect here soon, but probably next week. It doesn't necessarily always mean saved. I think in this verse it does, but it doesn't always mean that. I'll give you examples later. But this is what he says in Matthew. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heavens to the other. What I want you to note is Matthew, separated here from Revelation, is saying he's going to send out from the four winds these angels with seven trumpets. When the trumpet sounds, then you're going to have the elect being gathered. If you look in chapter 7, what we're seeing is this is right before what? is going to be blown, the seven trumpets. So the timing is exact. There is going to be a gathering from the four winds. And it says, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 34. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam. Against Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them towards all those winds. There shall be no nation where the outcasts of Elam will not go. Here we're seeing judgment. Jeremiah is talking about these four winds, but in Matthew we seeing, we're seeing the four corners, the four winds, and rescuing, redeeming going on. In Jeremiah we're seeing judgment going on. It's not a contradiction. What we're seeing is that God is preparing judgment here in chapter 7. But he says, whoa, stop. Before you bring judgment on the land, the sea, all of these things, I need to bring a seal and put it on these people. So you see both. Judgment is coming, but also redeeming. So it's not a contradiction. Both take place at this time. So... Um, it's kind of a, a paradox. This, these four winds are bringing judgment, but in grace it will gather. Gather the redeemed. So, um, all we know is it seems that this 144,000, they're protected from this tribulation period in some way, shape, or form. They're redeemed. They have a job I'm going to just sneak a little peek to try and keep cohesiveness. I think elect, I've said this maybe before, but part of being elect is being chosen to do a job. For example, when we elect a president, they are chosen to do a job. Not all, I mean, Israel is God's elect, are they not? Was all Israel saved? No. No. God called them to be a blessing to the nations around them. They had rejected God, so as a result, he says, all day long I held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Right? They were his elect, but they had rejected it. Okay? But these 144,000, these elect, these are the ones that did accept the grace of God. They answered the call. 
And that's going to be important because they are overcomers. All right? Ezekiel 9, verse 3. Now, again, we've looked at some of this, but I'm going to look in greater detail. We, we looked at this verse last week, but it says in verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. These 144,000, they're not your average Christian. They are overcomers. They are the ones that are above and beyond, who weep and wail and mourn because of the abominations going on. And it says... So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Notice you see the same thing. A redeeming and then a judgment. Same pattern. They went out and killed in the city. It goes on in verse 8. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see and as for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. This is a pattern of the trumpets that are about to blow. There is judgment, but there's also redeeming. And though who are those that are redeemed? Those that are marked. And who are those that are marked and redeemed? Those who weep and wail over the abominations that go on. In other words, they hate sin. Why so exactly 144,000? I don't know for sure. It is. I mean, there's no question 12 and 100, you know, 12 of each one is a number of completion. Is that the purpose? Is it just symbolic of a greater number? I don't know. It might be, it may not be. Even in the days of Elijah, we remember that he was worn out. And he says, Lord, he says, they've killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And what was the Lord's answer to him? I have still reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Is it the same type of thing? That seven, completeness, a round number, maybe. I don't know. All I know is that it is a very specific number compared to what we're about to see next week right after this in verse 9. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And it's not just Jews. It says from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So there's a separation between these people of Israel and every tribe, language, nation, people all i know for sure is that these people hate sin these are not the people that are walking around today celebrating lgbtq unless they mean let's get biden to quit okay they are not celebrating uh any of the homosexuality, they're not the ones fighting for Roe v. Wade and, and all excited that that has been overturned, or I should say upset excited, because, oh, now we're going to have you know too many people in orphanages, and now women are going to have to travel to go get their abortions, and all this blah, blah, blah garbage. Says women should stop sex. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's not... <laughs> That's not these 144,000. All I know is what the text says here at this point. Let's focus in on it a little bit more. Well, actually, before we do, Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. That's going to be important because we see the Song of Moses is going to be sung here, you know, 
in Revelation. It mentions it. And you go to Deuteronomy 32, you read about the Song of Moses, and what you're going to see is it is a mini book of Revelation. You're seeing people being spared, and you're seeing people being judged. It's, you know, I'll let you go read Deuteronomy 32 on your own. But there's some parallels here. So let's focus in on this 144,000. This is all of what Scripture says about them. Again, we only see them in chapter 7 and chapter 14. They are sealed. In other words, protected. Revelation 3.10 made some kind of promise about this. And it said, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So, he says those who persevere, he was going to keep out of this trial. Now we talked about this verse back then, if these churches do indeed represent periods of time, they're gone and they were kept out of it. But that would also be a dual prophecy of those during the times of the end, who persevere. And he says, I'm going to keep you out of it. Here we're seeing some people being kept out of it. Clearly, they're kept out of it. Um, We see here, God's name is put on their forehead. Look at what it said in chapter 3, verse 12, with that church. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So here we see those overcomers that get God's name. Revelation 14 says God's name is put on their foreheads. We see they are virgins. That's why there's only 144,000 probably, if it's a real number, right? Because I don't mean that as just a crass joke. I mean it as serious because I love what Paul says, and I use this all the time when it comes to homosexuality and those who call themselves gay, and I try to challenge them and say, you're not gay, you're blessed, if, if there's a guy out there who is not struggling with lust after a woman, that is a blessing, not a curse. Paul said this. He said, I could wish that all of you were as I am, but each of us has our own gift from God. He says, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. I am saying this for your own good, he says, that you might live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. You see, as married men, and any man here can tell you that, we can't be fully devoted to the Lord because there are sometimes we just we have to please our wife or we try to please our spouse. And sometimes we even make compromises to try and do that. He says your interests are divided. You're concerned about the affairs of this world. But a man who is not married and does not lust after woman is a blessed man if he sees his identity in Christ. Because then he can go after and follow the Lord wholeheartedly without having his interests divided. And so when it talks about these men being virgins, it isn't because necessarily I don't think that, oh, I have lust and I'm controlling my lust, but rather that these people are wholeheartedly devoted to God. No. Going back to the churches, again, that dual prophecy, we see the same thing talked about there. It says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. 
So even there, it's talking about those in this church, but, but yet there were those who did not follow the ways of Jezebel, who did not fall into sexual immorality. And again, as we brought up when we went over that, I find it interesting, in the book of Revelation, we're living in a world that says, oh, eating food, it doesn't matter, you can eat anything you want now, it doesn't matter, we're free in Christ. And yet here in the book of Revelation, it's talking about committing sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. That's New Testament, not Old Testament. So, anyway, they're virgins. What I think that means is that they are wholeheartedly devoted to God. There is another verse in Corinthians which talks about to present you as pure virgins to Christ, basically undefiled. So at the very minimum, that's what they are, undefiled. We also see that they are redeemed among men. This is hard not to jump ahead and go through chapter 12 to explain all of this, so I'm just going to give you little pieces of it. But in chapter 12, it's, a, I think, a very misunderstood chapter of Revelation. And what we're going to see is that there is, as it starts out here, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain. And it's going to go on, and it says, She bears a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. 99.9% .9 of the people will say, That is Jesus. I agree. However, I think there's a dual prophecy here as well. I believe this woman is, I, I should say that the child is Jesus. I believe that this woman, there's a dual prophecy, Mary and Israel. The child is going to be Jesus and believers. I will support that later when we get to chapter 12. But just to give you an understanding of it, we all come from Israel. Okay? The church was a Jewish church when it began. <clears throat> the Gentiles were welcomed into the Jewish church. All the believers come from Israel, from the Jews. Israel is the one that Jesus came from as well. Right? Theirs are the patriarchs. Theirs the promises. Theirs the divine glory and the covenants. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ from whom for whoever is who for whoever is praised. Romans quotes that. So Israel gives birth to Jesus, but Israel also gives birth to the church. Okay? So just keep that in mind. And what you're going to see is the devil is going to go after this child in chapter 12. The devil is going to go after the church. He's going to go after Israel. And that's what he does. But God is going to redeem from among men the people the devil goes after. Okay? Yes? Can you explain a little bit on the rod of iron part? It's kind of throwing me. There was a prophecy in Genesis that Judah, that when the scepter departs from Judah, and so really it's basically the scepter of power is all it's saying. So, we, Like I said, when we get to chapter 12, that's going to be a really interesting chapter, but I just needed to give you a little bit of that to show you that Satan's going after those people. And there's a consistency in chapter 12 that we see in chapter 7 that we see in chapter 14, and so on. Same basic thing here. We also see they are called the first fruits. These 144,000 in chapter 14, they're called that. I think it was chapter 14, maybe it was chapter 7, but one of the places. Well, notice what it says there in chapter 12 as well. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up. Remember, that child is Jesus and believers. Jesus was caught up. He, was, he ascended into heaven. 
Here, the 144,000 are redeemed among men, and they are called the first fruits. Therefore, they are the first to be redeemed from among men. And so there's some significance to that. So in helping us identify who this 144,000 is, what I'm getting out of it, the best that I can make sense of it is this, that they are Jews, but the cream of the crop, and they, because of being the cream of the crop, are going to be elect, chosen to do a job. Because as you're going to see in the next verse here, after these 144,000 are sealed, you get every language, people, nation, tribe, but who are they? You're going to see that they're the ones who come out of the tribulation. They weren't protected from death. These 144,000 are. But the ones after the 144,000 are not. But they're still believers. They still might even be the cream of the crop, but they're not of this elect group. Okay? That's as much as I can make sense of it. But that word caught up is harpazo in the Greek. It is that word from which we get the rapture that is used in Thessalonians that all the rapture people will talk about. That's the word there. Now, the other thing that's interesting is that this seems to be what's going to kick off the tribulation, as you will see reading there in chapter 12, verse 5, because it says this. Um... She gave birth to a son, uh, and in her child was snatched up to God, to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So, the catching up of this 144,000 seems to mark the middle of that seven-year period where they're going to be now taken, a group of people, the woman, goes out in the desert for three and a half years. That's the timing of this all. Does that make sense? Am I being clear? Because I know that there's a lot of pieces here, moving pieces, it seems, when you have to... Make another one of those yeah. <laughs> so, basically, the timeline of Revelation 12, without reading the whole thing, the child is born... The devil waits to destroy that child. The child is caught up. So the woman, Israel, flees to the wilderness for three and a half years where she is protected. War breaks out in heaven. The dragon is then cast out of heaven to the earth. And then we're going to see these three woes. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the devil has gone down to you and the time is short. That's Revelation 12. So anyway, in Revelation 12, the being caught up, we're seeing some sort of harvest, a first fruit. And in Revelation 14, we're going to get more details of that harvest when we get to that. But again, I'm trying to kind of put two chapters together here. But if you can keep that general timeline in mind, maybe go and read Revelation 14 and read 7, uh, and get these things put together. Kind of covered the fact that we have an, a song every time there's deliverance. So, all right. One other thing here. Uh, notice, too, that where they are. Where are they taken? We said Jerusalem to Mount Zion. Now, maybe there's a spiritual Mount Zion that it is, or maybe it's the physical one. I tend to think it's the physical Jerusalem that these 144,000 are taken to. That means they are on earth. But where are the group of people that you're going to see right after these 144,000? They're with the Lord in heaven. Not, I shouldn't say the word in heaven. They're, they're with the Lord before the throne. Well, well, you'll get that in the very next verse in chapter 9 there of chapter 7. It says this. After this I looked, and there before me was the great multitude that no one could count, 
every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were, not wear, or they were wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So there seems to be a contrast or a difference between these 144,000 and this multitude in many different ways. I don't want to make too much of this because I think maybe you could make those words mean the same thing. But what is interesting is these 144,000 are with God on Mount Zion, with the Lamb. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders, they fell down before him. Revelation 5.8, they were before the Lamb. Revelation 8.2, they were before God. Revelation 7.9, they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. But these 144,000 are with him. Like I said, I don't want to make too much of that, but it is interesting that different words were used. With him, and in all these other cases, it's before him, before him, before him. Revelation 14 um, just says again, with him. Revelation 3.21, these overcomers. Okay, We've already seen from these churches those who overcome... The attributes that they get, we have already assigned to the 144,000. So now you go and you look in those churches, and it says to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me, not before me. Ephesians 2.6, he says, it raised up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, again, I don't know what to make of it. I don't want to make too much. All I know is that there's a difference said there. So we'll let you kind of think about that. All right? So, again, if anybody wants to have more of this kind of stuff or see it, you can go to patreon.com at creation instruction. We're going to get a little further here. Revelation 7, 9. All right, so we are going to get into verse 9. I didn't think we were going to get to verse 9 tonight. So after these 144,000 are sealed here, it says in verse 9, After these things I looked, behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what we're seeing here again is tabernacles. I mean, this screams the Feast of Sukkot. If, if a Jew read this, they wouldn't even have to, you know, turn the corner to get there. Palm branches, they're singing, and what are they singing? Salvation belongs to our God. What do they sing on tabernacles? The exact same thing. Leviticus 23 again. Um, we, we looked at this verse, so I'm not going to read it all, but I've got it there showing the palm branches as a festival in seven years. And I've already shown you that these 144,000, if you can connect that to Revelation 12, they go out, the woman is protected for three and a half years, which seems to suggest this is in that seven-year period. And here is this seven-day festival. So possibly, again, I don't know, just speculating, that this 144,000 and whatever, whatever, this could be in the midst of tabernacles, or the midst of Sukkot, that this would happen. Pure speculation. All these people that are saying they're clothed in white robes, are these those who have already died and are in heaven doing this? They are. And in Revelation 19, we see what those white robes are. It says these are the righteous acts of the saints. So they are being rewarded for their righteousness. Again, they don't get to heaven because of their righteousness, but when you're in heaven, you're rewarded for your righteousness. Today, Tara and I were talking about that as well, in you know, sending on the lumber. There, there's some truth to that. Because 
uh, we, in the message today, he was talking about in Mark where, you know, it, the parable where the guy goes and, and tells his servants to do something. Some get to work and some don't. And he says, what's going to happen to those people who come back and the servants haven't been working? And the speaker, Trevor Rubenstein, said, are you working? What are you doing? The Lord came back today. Is he going to find you working for him, a servant of him? Or is he going to find you so worried about your house, your, your vacations you're planning, your kingdom that you're building here on this earth? Or is he going to see that, oh, no, you've been working for me trying to build the kingdom of God? I do think that there can be a rapture before the seventh trumpet. I'm not pre-trib, but... Clearly, we see these 144,000 caught up. These people are just there. What does it mean to be taken out of the tribulation? Well, it's kind of interesting because if you read how it's worded, it sounds to me like they suffer a little bit. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's just salvation in Christ therefore they are before the throne of God serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them never again will they see hunger never again will they thirst the sun will not bear upon them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and, and so on it's not concrete but it seems to hint at maybe some suffering that they did get there what we're seeing, in essence, is a large number of saints in heaven, but these cannot be all of the saints, as I said, because the seventh trumpet has not yet blown. It's not until the final trumpet blows that we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, that the believers enter heaven. The mortal becomes immortal, and all of these things happen. We'll look at that later. But at this point... This is right before the seventh seal, or the trumpets begin to blow. So this is ushering in the trumpets. Um, another thing is, what have we seen taking place here? He says, listen, don't harm anything until I put a seal on you. And then, after the seal is on, go harm. What do the trumpets do? The trumpets bring harm. What kind of harm? The exact harm that these angels of the four winds were waiting to do. They harm the sea. Okay? They harm the land. They harm the trees. So the trumpets are coming. Judgment is just being stayed off just a little bit to seal them. Well, the Feast of Trumpets takes place as a fall festival during the grape harvest. All throughout Scripture, and we'll talk about this at the Feast of Tabernacles again, but all through the Bible, the grape harvest is associated with God's judgment. And judgment is now about to take place. So one more thing that screams Sukkot here in chapter 7. And this is in the first three and a half years. Still. Or the, after the first three and a half, possibly. Yeah. If I would take a guess at it, I think maybe that the first three and a half years are those seals, the six seals so far. Then we see this happening, and then you're going to have the next three and a half years. Yes, it all speeds up. Or this, this commercial break is taking a bird's eye view of what's been happening and all those seals take place in seven, during those seals. But I think that those seven years are within the seal judgments. That's where I've come to terms with. Because the trumpet judgments are not on us. I don't see that we're there anymore after the trumpets. Or before the trumpets, I should say. That causes desolation in that seven-year period. In the middle, right? Yeah. And after these people. Yep. So somewhere in this, that has gone on on earth, even though we didn't get to read about it yet. Yeah. 
The best way to find out how that would be would be go to Matthew 24, which talks about it. Remember, Matthew 24 matches the seals. And in Matthew 24, we see that immediately after the sun is darkened, then the Lord's coming back. So the, sea, the sun was darkened on the sixth seal. So now the Lord's got to come back. And what do we see happening here? Well, it seems like the 144,000 are caught up to where? Jerusalem. And the Lord is there too. So has the Lord come back? And has he come back fully? So he's there and then he's there again. <laughs> or does he just kind of come part way? Yeah, and, and he's not there yet. You know, he's going to come in the clouds. Okay, remember a few weeks ago we talked about a Jewish view of the rapture, very different than a lot in the modern Christian world today, in that the rapture was to take people to Jerusalem, that they're caught up and taken to Zion. Well, exactly where these 144,000 were taken was to Zion, and that harpazo word was used. They're a separate group of people. Now, but... So who's the multitudes? Is that us? I think, well, again, maybe. It depends on do you include us or are those only those who have come out of the tribulation of that seven-year period? Yeah. Yeah, it does get confusing. So for now, what I want you to see, though, is that Sukkot, Tabernacles... There is no question, Revelation 7, 9, and 10, we're there. This is a tabernacle Sukkot picture. I'm going to focus here on all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Look at that. Because this phrase is used in Revelation a number of times. Okay. Now, again, I don't know fully what to make of this, but notice nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. Here I have the other places it's used. The first two here, 10 and 17, Revelation 10 and Revelation 17. You have nations, tongues, and peoples, but one has kings and one has multitudes, not uh, tribes. Tribes is missing in those two. Okay, then you look at chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 14. You have... Um, in chapter 5, first, uh, what, out of every tribe and tongue, people, nation. Chapter 11, peoples, tribes, tongues, nation, same thing. Chapter 13, tribe, tongue, nation, and just peoples is left out. Chapter 14, tribe, nation, tongue, people. It is identical in every other one except for tribe is left out in chapter 13. And then in chapters 10 and 17. So, why? I was kind of pondering and trying to look at this, and there's only one thing that could be a possibility that came up in my mind. Well, one thing could be, well, it's just a different way of saying it, but I think Scripture and its inspiration, every word matters. So, it's there for a reason. He's all out of the same version? Yes. So, in 10, 11... In 1715, the top two there, I'm going to say this. Possibly, every time the word tribe is included, it includes the godly people. Whereas in the top two, it is speaking about the ungodly only. Okay, look in chapter 10, the context is... He's, John is going to eat this scroll and it becomes bitter and he's supposed to go and prophesy to these people judgment. Well, he's prophesying the six seals almost, well, well the trumpet judgments in essence. And so the tribes, if it's Israel, are left out because that message doesn't apply to them. In chapter 17, this is where the woman on the beast, it's the devil and his kingdom, and that devil's kingdom is sitting over these people. So again, the godly 
would be left out. In chapter 5, they're mentioned, but as part of the redeemed, so they're godly. In chapter 11, we see again that the people are staring at the two witnesses who are killed, all right? And that would be a mix of godly and ungodly, but the, the godly would be included in that. In chapter 13, um, same basic type of thing. The devil goes after to make war with them. Well, to make war with the godly. In chapter 14, uh, an angel flies out in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel, so preaches to everybody who dwells on the earth, and they would be included in that. Yeah, so here's the question then. In chapter 10, where we see it not mentioned anymore, this rapture kind of thing, this 12,000 from every tribe, has already taken place. They're gone. Possibly. Chapter 17 is looking back um, with this woman riding the beast. That would take place during that seven-year period. But again, maybe gone at that point. I, I don't know. But it's something to ponder and think about. Like I said, I believe it's there for a reason. But that's the best that I could come up with as a possible explanation. All right, so Zechariah 14 is a big uh, verse talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, and basically exactly what we've been reading about. It says, then shall, go, or then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So the Lord is going to go out and fight against the nations. Judgment is coming, just like what we saw. Hey, wait, before judgment comes, let me see all these guys. His feet shall stand on that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. So Mount of Olives is splitting in two. There shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, for our modern-day Christianity who says, oh, these feasts, those are old, God did away with that when Jesus came, well then go read Zechariah 14. He has not split Mount of Olives in two yet, and we're going to be doing it. So these festivals are not only for the Old Testament believers. It is for us as well. But his feet stands on the Mount of Olives. Now, the 144,000 were over there on Mount Zion opposite that. But uh, this is when the Lord's coming back. So just another picture of what is going on to add to these other pieces here. Um, Leviticus 23, again, we've kind of looked at this, so I'm not going to go through it again because I thought this would be next week and I'd have to remind you. But the 15th day of the seventh month, it's specifically mentioned that this is tabernacles and connecting it with what we have had. So we've kind of covered that already. Um, one of the things that I did add that kind of was interesting to me and only a thought again. I don't know if it means anything. But it says in verse 40 of Leviticus 23 that you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, the branch of palm trees. So it's the first day that those were to be taken. I don't know if there could be an equivalency there to the first fruits that these 144,000 that that is a picture of the first fruits being taken? Just a thought? Don't know. What were these people singing? Salvation belongs to the Lord. We'll look at here in Psalm 118. This is what every Sukkot, the Jews in the synagogues, even to this day do and did when Jesus came. Uh, and when he was walking the earth on Sukkot. 
they will sing Psalm 118 saying, The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. What are these multitudes that have been redeemed and brought out of the tribulation singing? Salvation belongs to our God. In essence, Yeshua, the Lord saves. Yeshua. In verse 15, it says, The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. They are singing. They are rejoicing. They are in the tabernacle before the throne of God. That's what they sing at Sukkot. They're singing the same thing. Isaiah 12, they also would sing from this, Behold, God is my salvation, Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation, Yeshua. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So, Again, just connecting this whole passage to tabernacles. Deuteronomy 31. Um, again, part of the celebration foreshadows when God is going to be a, a, a sukkah. During tabernacles, it's called sukkot. That's the plural of sukkah, this shelter that you live in or you know, eat in and whatnot. Well, that is a picture, a rehearsal of when God becomes a sukkah to protect you. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 31. Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, and the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel has come to appear before the Lord, again, interesting that these people are brought to the Lord, at this time period in Revelation. Thy God in the place which he shall choose, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, thou shalt read this law, literally Torah, before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together. That's what Jesus just did there in Revelation 7. Men, women, children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates. That they may hear, that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law. So what is God calling us to do when he brings us there? To hear, to fear, to observe, to do. Isaiah 4 verse 5 says this, Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Are these those 144,000? And maybe the multitude? I don't know, but at least the 144,000? All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Remember, seal these guys before I bring judgment. That's what Jeremiah had. That guy with the, the writing on the side. Go put a mark on their forehead before I bring judgment on Jerusalem. And then he goes out and he kills all kinds of people in Jerusalem. Here Isaiah 4 is talking about end times. And that seems to be what's going on here in Revelation 7. Okay, before I bring judgment, mark them. Verse 5. Yeah, for sure. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. There's our sukkah. He brings people to Zion and now he's going to protect them. I should have looked. I don't know what that word is there. I should have looked at that, but I didn't. Maybe you can check for me what it is in Hebrew. So, um, just some... I, I'm hoping all these pieces are coming together to make this a little bit cohesive, that you're starting to get a picture of what's happening. I'm repeating myself a lot, but... 
I don't know, but I guess I have to ask the question then, is this Isaiah 4, 5 referring in part to the 144,000? Because they're the ones that are left in Zion, which is where they're at. It is hoopah, okay, which is like the same thing done in a wedding, which is the picture of that. So very similar, yeah. Remember I talked about the elect, that that's for a job. I don't know. This is just me thinking out loud again. Could it be that the 144,000, because here we see they're called holy in Isaiah 4, that they are brought there to do a job. And that job is to go and cleanse and prepare Jerusalem so that it is ready. Because we saw Jeremiah go mark the people who mourn in Jerusalem and then kill the rest so that there can be holiness in Jerusalem so that God can now be there so that he can now be a hoopah uh, over it. Okay? I don't know. But again, these 144,000, they, they've got, they're, they're there for a reason. It's specific for, for some kind of job, I think. And this is the picture that all these verses seem to be pointing to. Um, verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders of the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so, right here, the multitude, we, we don't see them being talked about here at this point, but this is uh, kind of the angels and the elders, and they are worshiping God. So, the previous fourfold doxology, if you remember when we were going through the churches, we had this doxology that went two to three to four, and now we get a sevenfold doxology. It kept the previous four, added three new ones here. So, we have a sevenfold doxology of praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, strength. Verse 13 Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes? Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I like this because this angel, he says, he's like, Who are these arrayed in white? John's like, You're, you're asking me? You know. I don't know. And I've heard it said that this is kind of how we should be in the world, to be a light to the world. If you're waiting for people to come and ask you, hey, what makes you different? What gives you your joy? You might be waiting a long time. Instead, as we live our day-to-day -day lives, what we ought to be doing is going out and we should be asking the questions. Because when we ask the questions and you say, Hey, what do you think about this Roe v. Wade thing going on? Okay, you might get more than you want to hear, but it gives an opportunity for you then to share. In essence, that's what the angel's doing. John wasn't asking. So he's going to make John ask. And then he says, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it's the blood of the Lamb that the saints have become clothed in white. That is huge. Because they have white robes on. How did they get white? By the blood of the Lamb. What's the white robe stand for? Revelation 19 tells you the righteous acts of the saints. You see, your righteousness only comes from the blood of the Lamb. It does not come from your works. It comes from Jesus in you, empowering you to go do those works. But it is righteous acts. It is works, but works that are done in and through faith. So, very important to see that connection. Um, let's see, one, two, three. All right, my wife says you don't have to finish them all. 
So I think what I'll do is I am going to stop at that point, but I do need to read 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 here. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Notice, again, faith and action. Faith and works always go together. If you don't have works, let me tell you, you do not have faith. You can have works and you don't have faith. They need to be together. It says if we walk, if we have fellowship, if we do, then it says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. You can walk, you can have fellowship and not have Jesus and you still are not washed. You can have Jesus and not walk and not have fellowship and then you still do not have a washed robe. You have to have it all. We live, and at least I grew up hearing, oh, you can do nothing, you can do nothing. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. A lies from the pit of hell and is sending many to, to, to hell because James even said faith without works is dead. It's just where are your works coming from? And so something to ponder, just kind of like what we said before with Jesus. What, what are you going to do when the master returns and you haven't been working in serving him? So we'll close on that thought.